0: Uh, Hello, and welcome. Uh, My name is Brad Kloza, I'm the Program Director of the Future Networks Initiative at IEEE. Uh, If you're not familiar with IEEE, we are the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. Uh, Before we begin, I just want to explain uh, the format of this live event. Uh, Our panelists will speak for about 30 minutes. Uh, After that, we'll then uh, look to the questions uh, that that were left in the uh, comments section, uh, and uh, we'll pick some questions from the audience and get through as many of them as we can before we have to uh, close down. So feel free to submit any questions you might have for them uh, in the comments field. Uh, And now we can begin. Uh, This is the second in a four-part series for LinkedIn Live called 5G Demystified. Uh, This is a special collaboration between IEEE Future Networks and IEEE Educational Activities. Uh, And today's event is called Broadband is Infrastructure with a question mark at the end there. Uh, Our expert panelists are going to discuss this uh, somewhat new concept that internet access has taken its place alongside roads, bridges and utilities as a new kind of infrastructure in the purview of governments. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed a major flaw in global infrastructure when it turned out that millions, if not billions of people, were unable to work or attend school from home due to lack of reliable connections to the Internet. So, uh, What can we expect uh, with so much uh, government effort and and funding going into broadband? Uh, At this time, I'm going to hand it over to David Witkowski, who uh, lead us as the moderator through this panel uh, and introduce our guests.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone who's part of this. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today about this topic, which is, I'm sure, of interest to a lot of people. Um, You know, coming out of the pandemic, I I think we, uh, we didn't I mean, the pandemic didn't create the digital divide, but it certainly exposed many of us to its realities and the impact that broadband has on our daily life. Uh, prior to this, I think digital divide was something that we we knew existed, and it was in, it was unfortunate, um, but it didn't impact most people. And so it wasn't something that we, we put a lot of thought into, or at least many of us um, didn't put a lot of thought, although I think a lot of our panelists today did put a lot of thought into it. And, and now that the pandemic is uh, beginning to wind down, we're beginning to see the aftermath of that. Uh, as most people in the world's population entered their homes in March, in mid-March of 2020, I think m- many didn't realize uh, that they would emerge months later with a newfound appreciation for how critical this service is to our um, daily life in the 21st century. And so um, to address this issue, um, policymakers uh, across the world have begun looking at broadband as infrastructure, uh, as making it just as important as uh, roads and waterways and sewers and pipes and, and all the things that we we rely on uh, in the course of our daily non digital lives. And so in the United States, particularly Congress passed the infrastructure investment and jobs act or sometimes just known as the infrastructure bill. Uh, which included an unprecedented $65 billion for broadband expansion and extension across the United States and its territories. Uh, It includes funding for Native American tribal projects. It includes the Affordable Connectivity Program, which is uh, there to help offset the cost of access for families in need. It includes the Middle Mile Connectivity uh, Opportunity uh, Funding System, which uh, just recently went through application and is now in review and then there is the last mile connectivity uh funding opportunity which will come later when the uh, federal communications commission ratifies its broadband maps which by law are necessary in order to move the last chart the last mile program forward uh the the infrastructure act uh and the the funds for broadband are administered by the national telecommunications and information agency or uh, administration i should say And combined with uh, many state level funding programs, I I really see that this represents a generational opportunity um, for the United States to uh, modernize and extend uh, our networks. Given the size and scope of this program and the funding associated with it, um, there's a huge amount of interest from public agencies, private companies, nonprofits, and and of course, uh, lots of consultants who uh, all have uh, great ideas on how to make this work. Um, Experts uh, who were previously affiliated with organizations like the Marconi Society and the California Emerging Technology Fund have been called up and are now working for the NTIA on these programs. So it's uh, it's interesting um, when we think about how many people who are involved in digital inclusion are now working for NTIA. I think we'll talk about that during today's uh, panel. And so today we're going to discuss um, the Infrastructure Act. We're going to examine how these programs might play out in the months and years ahead. without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, quickly our panelists. Um, Starting in no particular order, Paul Garnett has more than 25 years of experience in telecommunications and technology, law and policy, market development and business development. Prior to founding the Vernonberg Group, a consulting company focused on encouraging projects and businesses that bridge the digital divide, Paul created and led Microsoft's Airband initiatives, which many of you may be familiar with, uh, leveraging a partner-driven approach to extending broadband access to unserved communities in the US and globally. Amy Huffman is Policy Director at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, she also served as the state of North Carolina's first digital inclusion and policy manager for the Broadband Infrastructure Office. And we're gonna to talk today about the role of state broadband offices in, in these programs. And we uh, and she led the office's design of digital inclusion programs, policies, and tools to build the state's digital equity ecosystem. And last but not least, Alec, Alex Wiglinski, is the associate dean of graduate studies at worcester polytechnic institute and i hope you appreciate i pronounced worcester correctly alex um is uh, he is an internationally recognized expert in wireless communications cognitive radio spectrum coexistence 5g and 6g connected vehicles software-defined radio dynamic spectrum access satellite communications and vehicular technology Alex is also director of the uh, of Worcester Polytechnic Institute's Wireless Innovation Laboratory, or WILab. So, good morning to and good afternoon to all the panelists. Um, let's just go straight into it. Um, I think that it's important to sort of start as as uh, Simon Sinek says. Uh, we we should start with why. So let's talk about why this program exists. What is the intention? of the uh, broadband portions of the Infrastructure Act, and how are the various programs implemented? And I'm going to uh, start off with Amy, since you worked at the State Broadband Office, um, and you've been you part of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. So um, please tell us the intentions here, and, and where is this coming from?
2: Thank you, David, and thank you for having me here. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here today with these esteemed colleagues. Um, so a big part of the why is was preempted by COVID, right? As you said in your intro, the digital divide is not new. Both Alex, Paul, and I have been working on this for some time. You know, if you combined all of it, it would be decades. And yet COVID really did just tear open the spotlight on the issue. And so In response to that, Congress passed several pieces of legislation that were intended to respond to it. The Infrastructure Act, they took a different approach, actually. It wasn't a response. It's not meant to be a Band-Aid approach. It is meant to set up new systems that uh, completely and holistically address all the different facets of the digital divide and therefore set us up for if future digital divides or if future pandemics or future instances happen where um, people were all home again or things like that, that there will be systems in place to make sure that everyone's covered. Mm-hmm. And they also recognized in the Infrastructure Act that there are not only um, multiple pieces and multiple facets that need to be addressed, but that states have a really important role to play in, um, in supporting broadband infrastructure and deployment and also in digital equity. And so you see that through both the broadband equity access and deployment program and the digital equity act program that they've really, the federal government has given states a lot of, um, authority and responsibility to lead the way in closing the digital divide in their individual states and territories.
1: Thank you, Amy. Um, Paul, you have uh, thoughts on the intentions here? And you've you've seen this more from the commercial side. So Yeah,
3: I mean, so I think, you know, as, as Amy said, the COVID-19 pandemic definitely shined a, a more intense spotlight on the whole issue of, of the digital divide. And and uh, so I think I don't think I don't think anyone would, would disagree now that that having access to the internet over a high speed connection is important. Um, and um, not just on a mobile device um, you know but also a fixed device so you know or fixed connectivity in the home so so home broadband access um, you know became all the more important during the COVID-19 pandemic with you know work from home and learn learn from home and get access to doctors from home and all that Um, and if you look if you look at you know at the U.S. overall um, you look at the numbers basically between two and let's say 12% 12% of U.S. households um, don't have access to to broadband as it's defined by the Federal Communications Commission, 25 megabits per second down and three megabits per second up. Um, and then if you look at, and that's, you know, and the infrastructure bill calls that unserved, right? And then if you look at the underserved, which are folks who don't have access to um, 100 megabits per second down and 20 up, that's, a, that's, let's say between 10 and 20% of households, depending on whose numbers you believe. Um, so that's that's the group of people who couldn't get broadband access, couldn't buy broadband connections at home, even if they wanted to buy them. Um, and then there's a second related issue of 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 adoption of technology, adoption of connectivity, people actually purchasing home broadband when it is available to them. And about you know, and this will vary by location by state, but across the U.S., about a quarter of of US households don't subscribe to broadband even when it's available to them um, and there are definitely some differences among different demographics so low income is going to tend to be have a higher uh non-adoption rate than high income in the US um so those are the two those two you know those two issues are, are really the key the uh, availability issue challenge and the adoption challenge and and both of those are are you know there are significant gaps there and that's I think that's why you know we've been through rounds and rounds of legislation and, and funding opportunities for this over the last few years. And, and we will for the next you know, half a decade in terms of its implementation. You're on mute, David.
1: A big red box around my, my thing that says you're on mute. Um, a um I think it's really interesting how you're, you're right I mean in, even in places like the Silicon Valley right I, I lived in San Jose um California where we had you know we had uh, vDSL at 100, 120 um uh, ostensibly 120 it never really performed at that level but the but even that was often not adopted and some of that is cultural right I mean just some of it's just understanding um city of San Jose has uh, when they brought on their digital inclusion lead, um, they actually hired Jill Bourne, who was the librarian uh, from from the uh, city of San Jose in the library system. So she has been looking at digital inclusion not just as do you have availability, but are you do you understand how to use you know, as a librarian, what you would expect that she would be focusing more on uh, on the adoption side of this, which is I think has been really important for them. Um, Alex, you see this from the academia standpoint, and um, you've also been involved in your local community in in broadband. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about your perspective.
4: So, thank you, thank you, David, and uh, thank you for <clears throat> having me uh, be part of this uh, great panel with with uh, with Amy and and Paul. Um, happy to be here. Um, so, from from my perspective, from the more technological uh, standpoint. Um, a lot of my initial work in this space has been uh, focused initially with respect to the infrastructure reaching uh, places that are like underserved or unserved. Not, not so much from an economic standpoint in terms of, you know, whether a family, a household can afford broadband or not, but whether they're even, uh, they have the opportunity to have, to have that in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So one project that was sponsored by U.S. Ignite. Uh, which was uh, led by uh, uh, Missouri uh, Science and Technology University in ROLA. Um, So uh, Casey Canfield, uh, her and and, and the rest of the team, we were sort of the technology arm of it. We were focusing on a a test deployment of looking at different types of wireless technologies. And uh, so middle mile and last mile technologies that would be able to provide one town, uh, in Northwest Missouri with connectivity. And it was interesting because this town was only 60, 70 miles north of Kansas city, right? Which is relatively well-connected and, and these folks, a lot of which the law of these people who actually commute to Kansas city, when they get home, uh, they do these outstanding things. Like for instance, they, they, they have, they, they, they go through three, uh, cell phones worth of data plans in order to provide broadband for their entire house or just connectivity for their house. Forget about broadband. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we were like exploring, you know, different types of technologies other than fiber. Right. Because, you know, we hear a lot about fiber, this and fiber, that fiber is great. Fiber is fantastic. You can't beat fiber in terms of amount of data, but what about other technologies that, you know, some folks have looked at and say, oh, that wouldn't work or whatnot. Like for instance, millimeter wave, Right. Like, and I don't mean millimeter wave from a 5G definition. I mean, millimeter wave from like, you know, a point to point uh, type of like 60 gigahertz graph kind of stuff, right? 60, 70 gigahertz higher, you know, where you can, uh, you know, um, sure. Again, it's not terabits per second type of data traffic, but can you reach these communities? And then afterwards from that using another, like other types of technologies, like unlicensed, um, unlicensed LTE or unlicensed 5G technologies. So, I mean, the idea is, and I kind of think of like Dilbert, whenever, whenever I'm like in a scenario where it's a difficult challenge, I usually think of Dilbert and I say, work smarter, not harder. How right. can we use the available wireless technologies that, you know, over the last 20 years, since the dot-com bust of 2001, mm-hmm. there've been a lot of advances in terms of wireless technology, right? It's in the news constantly 5G, this 5G, that but there other technologies, can we put them to use in order to provide connectivity to these folks, something cost effective where we don't have to, like, you know, here's another roll of fiber, okay, that's all the funding we have, we have to wait until next, something that's cost effective, and and that also translates all the way down to the taxpayer and to these communities, right? right. But, but also, like, exposure here within closer to home, like Worcester, uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, broadband connectivity and that's more for like you know economically challenged parts of the city where you know during COVID-19 a lot of them did not have access for remote education right they like at the end of the day they 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 got that broadband access through public libraries right like uh and you know renting uh wi-fi uh, uh you know uh 5g and 4g hotspots in order to do their homework right, right? so so in terms of infrastructure Folks are definitely looking at ways to creatively and cost-effectively develop this type of infrastructure that can bring that broadband to these communities. In the case of, like, let's say, rural communities, tribal lands, you name it. But also, uh, like, economically viable solutions for folks who might not be able to afford uh, broadband, like you know, through, you know, like through things like fiber and such.
1: It's interesting you bring up the alternative technologies perspective. Uh, Recently, the IEEE. Uh, hosted the 5G World Forum, and IEEE Future Networks uh, as, as the head of the deployment working group, we were part of that. And one of the things that we do uh, during these events is we do uh, cross-team interactions. So I had uh, meetings with the IEEE Connecting the Unconnected, which I know, Paul, I think you're part of that, right? So I, I had a long conversation with uh, Yosef Null from the University of Oslo, and he was telling me how in northern um, in the Scandinavian countries, they are moving away from fiber towards wireless, and and with mm-hmm. the recognition that at least in that area of the world, fiber is really really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and you know we we talked a little bit about in the pre in the pre uh, panel we talked a little bit about the idea of, for example, micro trenching in a place where you get hard frosts. Right, um, mm-hmm. lost city of Las Vegas, Nevada had had some issues with with micro trenching for the other reason was that gets really, really hot there and the glue melts and the fiber Mm. comes popping out of the ground like snakes, right? So people are (laughs) driving down the road and wondering why there are loops uh, sticking out of the roadway. Um, So so it's fiber is certainly um, performance wise is is a great technology, but it may not be the solution. Um, And so I I tend to, um, I'm balancing that against what seems to be at the United States, which is a very fiber focused perspective. Um, and maybe we can make that work here where we're in, in Scandinavian countries, it won't work, but it'll, it'll remain to be seen. Um, <clears throat> so, Amy, you talked about other funding opportunities, or rather the the fact that this is just a continuation of of efforts. So there was CARES, there was American Recovery, there have been other things. Um, wh- what other funding opportunities for broadband are, are in parallel with the Infrastructure Act and Uh, the bead and the middle mile and such like that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there so one reason that states um, were brought up as one of the, you know, big components of the IAJA in order to give out funds is because many states actually already established state grant programs for last mile deployment. So many, I don't, can't name how many, but many states already have that. So state funding is already going towards this. Um, I know in my home state of North Carolina, we have a program called the Great Program. Louisiana has the Gumbo Program, which wins for the best acronym, of course. And then there are other, um, many other states have programs that fund that last mile deployment. And then the federal funds that we saw throughout the pandemic uh, in response to the pandemic, um, there are many. So you mentioned CARES, which was probably the, which was the first, um, and that provided some funding Um, for different projects. Um, Notably, one, I think about 100 million or 10 million went to the Institute for Museum and Library Services and went out through state libraries to find digital inclusion programs. Um, Then, of course, we had the um, Consolidated Appropriations Act, which provided funds to NTIA, and they stood up. I believe three different programs with that. Um, They had a broadband deployment program that was wildly oversubscribed. um, And then that's also um, where they set up the tribal connectivity program and um, the the program for um, minority serving institutions to do digital inclusion and broadband deployment work across the country. Um, and then there was the American Rescue Plan Act, which, of course, is the big one. so in that program or in that act, we had the um, emergency broadband benefit program that was stood up, which was the first time that Congress uh, stood up funds for low income households to supplement their broadband bill bill. Um, in addition to Lifeline, right? So there's $50, so they set up the program that's now the Affordable Connectivity Program, but at the time it was $50 a month. It was $3.2 billion for that program. Um, And then there's the, um, in addition, the state and local fiscal recovery funds, which went out to both states and local governments, and they had a wide range of things that they could spend those monies on, Um, but broadband was one of them. And digital inclusion was also an enumerated expense that they could spend those monies on as well. And then in addition to that, there's the capital project funds, which was a $10 billion set of funds that um, is is for broadband deployment primarily. And those funds are going out now. We're seeing announcements pretty regularly, actually, about weekly. And um, states are, again, the intended applicant and recipient of that. And um, we're seeing... Um, states be awarded with those funds um, to set up new broadband deployment programs or to run those funds through existing programs like Louisiana's Gumbo Program, right? Um, And I believe applications are due pretty soon for that. Um, And all of those programs were intended to be um, rapid response, um, get money out the door, and begin to solve these problems quickly, right? Whereas Infrastructure Act is intended to be long term, uh, complete with very thorough planning processes on the front end um, that uh, set up these long term systemic changes.
1: So it's really interesting. Thank you. You, you talk about um, you talk about all these programs and, and of course, where there's actually other programs which are potentially being considered right now. There's there's a bill in, uh, in Congress which is called the Grid Broadband Act. Um, that would uh, further Im- uh, add funding for, for broadband. And um, I, I think you recognized in the pre-panel that, that this was because we expect infrastructure to be oversubscribed and it's it's gonna be a, a small amount of what's necessary. I, I find one of the things that's interesting to me is how many different federal agencies are involved in broadband. Um, certainly the FCC is involved um the american recovery broadband element as i recall was was correct me if i'm wrong was administered by treasury which, which i thought yeah. was interesting right how i was treasury administering a broadband program um usda has always had the uh has always had an, an, a, th- an a hand in this because they deal with rural so that the feeling is as well you talk to farmers who need broadband so therefore when you're talking about cows you should all talk also i'm gonna make a telecom pun you talk about cows, you should also talk about cows, right? Meaning the cells on wheels or, or broadband. So, um, and then now uh, it looks like they're talking about having Department of Energy potentially administer the Grid Broadband Act, which which would be further. So, so, so we could have a long discussion about federal agencies interacting, but, but I, I wondered, um, I wanted to ask Paul for your thoughts on this. Um, given the complexity of what we're talking about and the, the interlocking timelines, um, what are the what are the potential challenges that come about from having this multi-agency multi-administration approach um, combined with the fact that states themselves have have broadband? And I realize that's a huge question, but I know you're a big thinker on this topic and I'm curious to get your thoughts.
3: Yeah, I mean, so we've gone from this we sort of transitioned from a world in which you know basically broadband, Uh, regulation, broadband funding was all done at the federal level and, um, and even at the federal level was concentrated in, in really three different places, the FCC, USDA with RUS and NTIA, um, to now adding, adding into the mix, um, treasury, um, I mean, U.S. Department of Education got involved a little bit because they were sort of responsible for flowing money to states in the sort of early rounds of COVID legislation, and now you're mentioning the U.S. Department of Energy. And then, obviously, there's been a huge shift um, through all of this legislation, supplementing what some states had already done with their own money at a small scale, um, basically shifting all the dollars, you know, that higher level administration happening still at the federal level, oversight at the federal level. But shifting responsibility for for um developing and implementing and overseeing these these programs at the state and local level i mean even at the local level so i mean it's going to state level is 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 definitely a big change but sending dollars directly in the case of um Hmm. local funding from arpa to counties and, and local governments for them to you know use the dollars at their discretion for a lot of different purposes including broadband that's a huge change so you know all of that adds Significant complexity um, to the whole system. Um, it introduces a whole new cast of players um, being involved in this. Um, you know, results in a lot of variability that will happen at the state and local level on programming. Um, you know, within within the range, um, and uh, so a lot of need for collaboration happening across federal agencies as well as the state and local governments um and um and a lot of uh need to harmonize all the different programming across all those different jurisdictions um and then and a very complex oversight um yes. system that's going to have to be put in place and to make a, sure a everything of, is done a right a
1: lot of touch points right there's a lot of touch yeah. points there. And you deal with yeah. counties and cities i mean how many counties and yeah. cities are there in the united states and they all yeah. have to be interacted with directly yeah um, and so you know, and i would
3: say like ntia for example, does do. A, does do a good job and i know that their life is going to get much more complicated but they you know, they do a lot with state broadband offices today mm-hmm. and i think that they'll continue to play an important sort of you know coordinator role um and you know treasury has been doing the same thing with anything arpa related so but it's just it's it's getting complicated definitely
1: yeah um and, and that that leads to a question that i wanted to ask um i'm going to ask alex and then i'm going to ask amy to comment on this one is so Throughout the history of the United States, um, the federal there's always been tension between the federal government and the states, right? There's a dynamic tension there that we resolve through various means and politics, but but states' independence from the federal versus the federal government's uh, attempts to kind of corral everyone into the direction of a United States um, that that leads to I think some some potential tensions here. Um, and since Alex, you work at the local level in, in Massachusetts, um, so if you could comment on what Paul said about local funding going directly into counties and cities, and then if, if you want to comment on the state's, the, uh, interaction, then that'd be great. But I'd like to hear from Amy also on the state's question after you're done, because, um, cause work with the state broadband office. So I'm curious how this plays out at, at the, uh, at the tactical level when, when the money is coming
4: in? That's a good question. Uh, so not, well, other than like, you know, for instance, like the once the, in Massachusetts, there's the Massachusetts broadband initiative, right. And they're, they, they provide funding through, uh, you know, sort of a proposal mechanism to, let's say towns or regions of Massachusetts that do not have, um either sufficient broadband access or no broadband access whatsoever right like a good example would be uh where mbi came into play was the town of princeton massachusetts which is a relatively difficult uh area to provide broadband connectivity not to the extent of like let's say the scandinavian example but Almost, almost as challenging because uh, it's it's located relatively inland from, from the ocean, for one. It's on the slope of Mount Wachusett. Uh, lots of, lots of uh, pine trees and such close to the, the soil. There's, you're not too far away from bedrock. So um, And the existing infrastructure that's there at the moment, like, you know, let's say utility poles and the like, um, there, there are a lot of issues with that as well in terms of being able to install this infrastructure on them. But uh, MBI was uh, one of the primary mechanisms for providing the town of Princeton with enough uh, with enough of uh, the, the uh, funding in order to start implementing or rolling out a fiber network across uh, across their uh, across town. Um, uh, again, like you know, there are some other limitations in terms of like you know, could you use other technologies like uh, you know millimeter wave? little bit challenging because line of sight will be very very difficult they've tried in the past other point-to-point wireless technologies but again um the reliability was like you know there were several issues with that especially with respect to things like latency which makes like two-way communications a big problem but uh yeah no mbi in terms of a a state resource has been uh has has been trying to serve in that that role um and then otherwise like you know for instance uh, in, in other, like, in, in like for instance, City of Worcester, for instance, um, you know, I think they've been trying to leverage, uh, like, you know, various sorts of uh, federal funding. I forgot if it was from EDA or not, like uh, Economic Development Administration or not, um, forgot which round of funding in order to start at least uh, develop some, like, broadband connectivity across across the city and, and, and the like. Uh, in order to provide, especially in, in economically challenged parts of the city, with with that access. But yeah. in terms of like funding at the local and state level, those are like it's it's either it's primarily like MBI that's like uh, kind of the big like you know sort of the big agency in town, and otherwise it's like usually federal sources that that are are leveraged. Thank you. Great.
1: Um, great answers, uh, Amy. Uh, how How will the how will the federal complexity, interagency, interadministration complexity, potentially play out with the state, uh, with with the state interactions?
2: Yeah. Um, so the federal government, I do. Know there's, like you said, a lot of different agencies that work um, doing this. I do know that there is interagency collaboration coordination, um, and I believe there's even a. Um, you know, there's an interagency working group with all, with which is a federal government's recognition that they all need to be talking to each other if they're all going to be in the broadband game, which is good. Um, and so in the spirit of that, you know, we hope to see that continue like that happen between the federal government and the states as well. Um, Cong- I think the I think the intention, though, of Congress was they they recognize that states are a level closer to the people than they are than the federal government. And that therefore states have a, uh, a better understanding of the needs on the ground. Um, and it is a smaller unit than say, if you were going to fund all of the municipalities or counties and local governments across the country, that would get pretty difficult pretty quickly. Um, so states and territories, in the District of Columbia became the, the unit that the federal government determined was the, the closest to the ground and then the most streamlined that they could get funds out to the people um, to make sure that this, this work is done that in a way that actually reflects the needs on the ground. And it gets particularly in, um, true when you get on the digital equity side of things because uh, there are certain things that, um are true across every state and territory. Uh, Affordability is a challenge, right? But how that affordability or really lack of affordability plays out in an individual's life is very nuanced. And so therefore the solutions to it should be nuanced. And so um, there's actually quite a bit of room for states to innovate in this area in both the digital equity planning process that is about to kick off for many of the states and in the Braviat Equity Access and Deployment Program, which is also the planning process about to kick off. There's a ton of requirements and some of them are, you know, only Congress could have come up with them um, that the states have to meet, but there's a lot of recognition and flexibility for them to tailor the things to meet the needs of their specific populations across their states. And so my hope is is that that, that will play out the way it was intended, right? That the... Um, There's the, the metrics and and the main things that, uh, and goals of the each of the various programs, um, that the States will have to meet, but then, uh, uh, but that they'll get to tailor it to the needs of their individual people. And so therefore it will hopefully play out well, um, now of course everyone is building this plane while we're flying. Right. And so I think we're going to see some hiccups and some turbulence yeah. <laughs> along the way. Um, it's not going to be perfect, I think. Um, but my hope is that it, it will play out the way it was intended when Congress wrote it last year. Yeah.
1: It, it's interesting. You, yeah. you say this, and Paul, I'm going to ask you a question. I'd also give you a chance to comment on what Amy just said. Yeah. But I just wanted to recognize one thing that Amy said, which was that state's um have the ground truth if you will on on how things work um i i think of course that that is that is uh it's a it's a true statement but it's also a broad statement in the sense that rhode island certainly has a great sense for what's going on in rhode island and california covering so much territory so many different uh you know ranging from urban coastal to to deep middle of nowhere county of inyo you know place that that has a population of eighteen thousand people and fourteen thousand of them live in one town right spread over thousands of square miles um understanding a, a large state i think is is a challenge for many of these state broadband offices so uh, variably saying that i think that there should potentially be regional approaches here in big in bigger western states especially um paul you you wanted to offer some comments and and i um you had in the prep call that we did you talked a little bit about even like how different states are approaching things slightly differently you also mentioned that um there were questions about whether these state broadband offices um even have the legislative authority to spend the money that's being sent their way so could you talk about that
3: um sure um i I just wanted to first respond to the question earlier on sort of this tension between the states and the feds and I I suspect that as this plays out, um, we're going to see more of that. And I think there's there's the potential for some sort of classic blue state red state kind of tension um, going on here. And in in particular, if you look at if you look at the infrastructure bill um, uh, implementation, the 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 BEAD program, notice the funding opportunity. There are like a, there are a handful of areas where I could see. Um, some significant variability in terms of how it gets implemented and and the potential for some tension between the way a state broadband office might want to implement that program and what and what ntiA is asking them to do um, And just to rattle off a few issues one like for example um, fair, fair labor practices you know some some states may not uh, be a big fan of, of, um, of writing that into their, Programming, or maybe not as aggressively as NTIA would want them to do, on pricing um, this middle-class affordability issue. Um, you know, does that require rate regulation? Does it not require rate regulation? How much discretion do you give to broadband providers when they get funding? Um, uh, issues around municipal broadband—that's that's definitely been kind of a, a, an area of debate across the states. You know, how much do we let? Um, cities and towns get into the broadband business you know there are some states where that's not permitted and yet the ntia is basically telling them telling the states they're not going to get funding if they don't allow for that option um uh, even even issues like climate change like climate resilience is a part of the bead program uh nofo that that um that uh, states are going to need to account for that um or require fund recipients to account for that and their and their planning um uh and then even in something like underrepresented groups um you know so you know that obviously there are some underrepresented groups that are sort of well documented in terms of broadband gaps some some less so and and does that create some tension between the states and the feds um in terms of the in terms of the um legislative issues yeah definitely um i've i've worked with some state broadband offices where um their legislatures uh have either given them or not given them authority to spend uh, federal money on broadband and um and have given them jurisdiction to do so and and so as the new as new uh federal legislation gets um gets uh uh signed into law and implemented states, state legislatures, which don't meet all the time. And there are some states where the state legislature might meet maybe like eight weeks out of the year, six weeks out of the year, and that's it, you know? So, right. you know, are they, are they going to be ready in the window that they all sit down and talk to each other and sure. and give people authority able to do that? So that's definitely um, going to, and, and that, that's going to that's gonna impact, you know, how this all gets rolled out and when and in different states. Sure. Um, so we're going to see some, I think we're going to see a lot of variability there.
1: And, and you're making the distinction between states that have like full-time legislatures, right?
3: Yeah. I right. mean, well, I mean, there's even states that do, I mean, it's hard enough in states where you do have full-time legislatures, but sure. there are some states where where you don't, and they right. have short windows when they all meet, and maybe it's once or twice a year, they all get together for several weeks, and everything happens then, and um, yeah, so I think there's definitely some issues around that, but right. we'll see. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Um, so, I, I want to time check a little bit here. We're about 42 minutes in and uh, we do want to leave uh, time for Q&A. We have a question from the audience that I wanted to address, um, but I wanted to lead into that question um, by saying that uh, certainly all of these programs are, are going to generate, I, I think, a lot of interest from technology providers who, who all want to be part of the solution um i know in particular there are some technology companies um, that i'm well aware of who have really benefited from for example cares or american recovery um i we're, we're one one company in particular that i won't name is, is really sort of like risen from the ashes uh through through these programs that it's it, they've a lot of interest in their technology now and um but in general um you know what? What would your advice be as panelists? And I'm going to ask um, Alex to start. Uh, what would your advice be for technology companies, briefly, on on how they should prepare? Where sh- how should they be approaching these opportunities and and getting their um, their value proposition out so that people can potentially consider them as solutions for that sort of non-fiber, especially? What what would you
4: say? So, so i i would almost like in my mind i am I'm, I'm almost thinking should be almost the, the a little bit of a change of perspective in terms of who's asking the question i would almost say you know town and municipal and local governments the and the communities themselves should be asking what are our requirements right for like you know in terms of the broadband connectivity we're seeking and the type of services like because because uh because i mean they're they're going to be a, a there are, there are numerous options out there in terms of like broadband connectivity that are non-fiber, right? Um, I think ha- making educated decisions on what those options are and how does it satisfy what you need is is really really important. Like so, for instance, like the number two, the two the two big things that come to mind for me are always latency, right? Latency is death, right? It's like you know, uh, and then the second thing is um, is is spectral coexistence, which a community might not care about. Too much until it becomes congested, right, That that, that like their network. And so, so you got to weigh those options, right? So like uh, often I've heard like, you know, the, oh, we'll just apply 5G and we'll be done with it. Well, sort of, but not quite, right, because, uh, you know, there are capacity caps um, in terms of like, you know, everyone says, oh, I heard like, you know, 5G is supposed to deliver this many hundreds of megabits per second and it's supposed to reach me this far away and sure. it's conveniently connecting all my devices. Um, But, you know, additional homework into that will reveal, like, well, how about in a municipality of, let's say, several thousand people? Will a cell phone base station be able to, uh, a 5G base station be able to provide that connectivity for that many users, especially if they're like two, three, four, five miles away, right? So. I think I think the the main thing is like I'm sorry if I twisted the question a bit, but I think really important it's a
1: fair twist. I mean I I think what you're saying is is that these have to be engineered solutions that are tuned to the local
4: environment. It's it's not a patch, it's not something like saying bloop, we'll just put this in place because we told this would be uh you know the elixir that solves all ills, Right. right? It's and and sometimes it's, it's like what might work in one community might definitely not work in another community, right? So right. so I think, I th- and, and, you know, and there are a lot of trade-offs. So, you know, we have things like satellite solutions, broadband side solutions. But then you have to look at definitely in that case, spectral coexistence and latency, right? Because SATCOM has a non-negligible latency, which means it's like, you know, hey, David, can you hear me? And all of a sudden, here's this awkward silence and then you respond to me. It's sure. that, that affects, uh, you know, human, the, you know, the experience of broadband. Uh, 5G has its pros and cons, millimeter wave has its pros and cons, all these different solutions. So, so yeah, so I, I'll just stop there, but it's like the communities need to be educated, need to do their homework. Uh, the, the, you know, policymakers, all of them. So, anyway.
1: So if I'm gonna summarize what you've said and I'm gonna go to you next, Paul. Um, and I'm going to give Amy the last word on this question. The, the technology companies should really be asking themselves, who are the local jurisdictions that are, are most suited for what we think are the capabilities of our technology? And they should be approaching those those municipalities, those jurisdictions directly, asking for uh, engagement. And then then hopefully, when the applications go in, that technology would be then be included in the potential in the design is what you're saying.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Paul, do you, yep. do you agree with that? Is, is, uh, is there a twist? Is there a twist to what, uh, Alex has said?
3: Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think first of all, there's, there's a lot of sort of perception out there that all the funding is meant for fiber networks. Um, and of course, if I'm anyone in the fiber industry, I'm thrilled with what's been happening. Um, but if you look at the, Legislation and look at the the funding opportunity, you know NOFOs or funding opportunity announcements or whatever the document is that comes out of the relevant federal agency. There's nothing in there that says that everything has to be spent on fiber. Um, and in fact, um, if you look at like the BEAD Act, the BEAD NOFO or the Treasury NOFO, basically says now the, yeah, there's certainly a preference for fiber as long as it's feasible. And um, you know, and and it and we know it's not feasible everywhere. Um, so I, the first thing I would say to the, to the states and the cities and towns is you have far more discretion than, than has been than you've been told uh, <laughs> and, and primarily by the fiber industry lobby um, who of course want everything to be spent on their technologies. Um, I think the second thing is on advocacy, I think um, for those technology companies that are sort of feeling that are feeling on the outs, like a lot of you know, terrestrial fixed wireless technology companies of all the different different flavors that are out there, satellite even even companies that do kind of hybrid uh fiber coax fiber fixed wireless networks um all those companies all need to get together um and go talk to the state broadband offices and explain to them uh first of all what the what the law allows and and what it requires but also what their technologies are actually capable of because i think a lot of state broadband offices as well, and especially at the local level have all been led to believe that that anything that's not fiber is useless and won't be useful for anything. So I think you've got to, there's got to be some, and this is the moment for advocacy right now, because this is when states are all coming up with their, their five-year plans. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the funding itself, I mean, there will be opportunities for tech companies to go directly to funders, uh, as in like state and local governments. Um but for the most part, the the, the dollars are going to be going to internet service providers or community-based um, uh, organizations, not-for-profits. Um, so, so as a technology company, you really need to be forging those partnerships um, with those kinds of organizations on the mm-hmm. sets of solutions that will have the biggest impact in the communities where they are are operating. Um, so, th- so that they will include that you know, what you have to offer in their uh, applications. I'll leave it there.
1: Thank you. Great comments. Amy, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I would just, you know, I'll double down on what Alex and Paul said about doing this in partnership with community. So instead of allowing um, the technology to shape the community, allow the community to shape the the technology Um, there's listening to the folks on the ground who live in the digital divide every day will provide input into what is needed in their households, right? Um, So this is what we're advising states to do. And while they're creating their digital equity plans, we're advising them to do that as they create their broadband equity access employment plans. And that's actually a big requirement in both of the NOFOs to talk to the community to learn about what they need. And so I'd advise the companies to do the exact same thing, right? This isn't about telling people what they need. It's about listening to them about what they need and designing solutions based on that, um, that are affordable, right? Like we can put all the pipes and wires we want in the ground, but if it's not affordable, it's not going to do anyone any, any good. So, um, just making sure that affordability is built into the economic model, um, as well as anything else that might be needed for the community members.
1: Yeah. I agree with that. I, I certainly, I I think there are, so summarizing all comments, I, I think one thing that I have seen has been that that there is definitely a sense in many of these, you know, like at the public utilities commission level, there's like fiber, right? Okay, fiber, fiber is the solution. Well, yeah, maybe, right? Um, maybe not, depending upon terrain, depending upon things. I mean, I, I think one of the things that that worries me about. Um, fiber as an uh, fiber uber alas strategy is that you look at the amount of environmental mitigation you have to do in some locations for to do that um, you know just in my in my local area where where i live and where my company's headquarters are um, we have an endangered salamander in this area that must be protected and when you look at a planning or zoning document for even a Uh, a simple project like putting up a new a new cell tower um you know 17 pages of that is is what to do if you find a salamander um now imagine that you're not just doing a square on the ground but you're 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 trenching along every or boring along every highway in the state of california which is sort of california's strategy has been to effectively say roads go to people therefore we're going to build Broadband along the roads, so they're they're partnering heavily with Caltrans in, in my state, um, and that's fine. But how do you mitigate all of the protected species that are, are you might encounter in the course of doing ten thousand miles of of roadway? Um, and and certainly there are policies and procedures in place to to do that. But it does lend itself to the notion that maybe fiber is not always going to be the solution because if you do find an endangered species or an archaeological site, Native American site, what do you do? You, you now you have to go around it. Um it'd be like that 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 scene in, in the movie where you know the freeway is going down the road and all of a sudden there's a house and everyone has to make a <laughs> kind of a loop around this house because the guy didn't want to sell his house, right? Um so um I, I want to switch to QA because we're we got about seven minutes left. Um, a, a question popped up actually from uh, Richard Barnhart, who I, who I know. Uh, hello, Richard. Thanks for being here. Um, uh, he asked the question, uh, can somebody address the role of Starlink in closing the digital divide? And so I'd, I'd put it to the panel. Um, do any of you want to comment on, uh, on Starlink's role? What is, uh, Alex, you talked a little bit about satellite. Um, so there's certainly, there's latency. Um, there's also capacity, right? Um, and then serviceability, because uh, there's very truck rolls to to orbit are, are expensive, if not impossible. So, what are what are your thoughts on Starlink? And then I'll
4: go around, let everyone else have a comment. I I think you already answered it. No, 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 no but no, but in Keeping all seriousness, but, but no, but I think I think the thing is, is that I remembered Shucks, how many years ago was it? Uh, in 2009, I attended a, a conference in Germany, uh, in Hanover, uh, and the keynote was given by uh, Joe Maitola, who was at at MITRE, and he's like, you know, the big name in terms of like, you know, he was a guy who coined cognitive radio, the term he has like, like a wildly downloaded uh, dissertation from KTH in, in Stockholm, Sweden. And I remember that that was his idea, like at the time, no one believed it, about having satellites uh, to cover you know, the broadband needs of, of the country, mainly because of like even though like you know um, you know doing service calls in space is kind of expensive and just you know getting that infrastructure into orbit and, and, and all that jazz. And don't forget about it being rad hardened, right? Because if there's solar flow activity, sure. th- that's going to be a huge sure. problem. There's a reason why they rad harden a lot of these like satellite and space platforms, right. But the one nice thing about it is that you know in terms of line of sight, you know, unless you live in a cavern or a cave or something, it does have that wonderful advantage. But at the this, it, suppose you don't care about video conferencing. Suppose mm-hmm. you don't care about, like, anything that requires real-time interactive bi-directional communications. You know, satellite's actually a, a very nice uh, option, right? Like, imagine you do a lot of downloading or a lot of uploading, and it's not real-time. Well, you got all that bandwidth. You got all, you, all as long as it doesn't require any sort of interactive communications. But in other scenarios, like let's say you have a community that does a lot of work from home or telemed or anything like that, mm-hmm. that could be a big problem, right? So, so you, but there are other options that are available that that could fill that gap. And I and think yeah. ultimately, it's right. a, yeah. you know,
3: you take a you take a toolkit approach and you use different different technologies and different business models depending on, on where you're deploying and who you're trying to reach. And I I don't think there's any question that there's some there's so much money and effort behind it, that Starlink is, you know, Starlink already has, you know, you know, one to 200,000 customers on their, on their, um, constellation today that they're, that they're basically, you know, piloting with, and it's been really successful so far. And there's, and they're planning to launch, you know, something like 30 to, Thirty thousand more satellites than they than they already have authority to do. So, so this is going to become a, a real deal, and and uh, other companies um, are are also looking to do similar things um, in the satellite space. So, I think definitely satellite will have a you know low Earth orbit satellite will have a role to play in in low population density areas where terrestrial networks uh, cannot be deployed for technical or economic reasons. Yeah, on okay. Starlink.
2: Yeah, the one thing I'll say about Starlink is at this point in time, the hardware cost is pretty, pretty, a a pretty hefty fee. I believe it might be around $600 to get installed in a home. Um, And then the service is on average about $100, $110 a month. Um, So it's pretty unaffordable for many families at this point in time. So just keep, I like to keep that in mind when we're talking about different solutions. Um, But, you know, I know some families in North Carolina, there was a pilot program with Starlink and they were very excited to get it because there was literally no other option. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I agree with Paul in that this is a toolkit approach. Um, I would like us though, as we're thinking about setting up these systems and going through this long planning process through the BEAD program and the Digital Equity Act program to really be thinking about the needs. That we have five plus years from now right so will starlink still be able to provide the bandwidth and the need and the capacity that everyone needs in five years so i, I would like states to go through that exercise right as they're th- setting up these programs they're thinking about the long-term future not a short term
1: yeah in my experience of having uh, having at one time considered a career in satellite broadband when i was uh, i applied to work at aloha networks um back in the late 90s and of course uh, you know at the time the thought was is that that would be viable um but we've we've never really seen satellite work to the level that we thought that it would there's always those those, those physical realities those engineering realities always crop in right so um uplink congestion dil- uh, latency um and certainly we've seen that in, in, in we've seen that in starlink right we we've seen that um, they recently were were removed from the RDOF program because they were not performing at the level that the government wanted them to perform. So it's it is and it I, I think as, as we summarize here and I see Brad coming on he's going to get the shepherds crook out. Um, we uh, I think satellite is a solution potentially, but it is not the solution for for a variety of reasons, and certainly it's not going to be the Uh, one technology to rule them all. That that makes everything better for the the rest of eternity. Uh, Thank you all. I just want to say thank you to to the audience and thank you to the panelists. Today was a great discussion. Really appreciated the opportunity to do this. Um, Brad is going to play us off the stage uh, and he'll give you some information about the, uh, the webinar series that we're doing. I really appreciate your contributions. Thank you for being here today and taking
0: time. And thank you, David. I appreciate it. Um, uh, and of course, to, to all the audience and our panelists, uh, it was a really interesting discussion. Um, and I look forward to, uh, to doing two more of these. Uh, if you want to tune into our next 5G demystified panel, uh, just look in the description below uh, the video field uh, that you're watching right now, and you'll see a link for the next one, which is called Health and Safety of 5G. Uh, a topic that has always been of keen interest to a lot of people. Uh, that one will go live here on LinkedIn on November 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, just uh, subscribe to to that upcoming event, and you should get a notification from uh, LinkedIn uh, when when just before we go live. And if you want to learn more about five G and how it could transform industry and society, please visit. The Future Networks Initiative website. It's futurenetworks.ieee.org. And that's all. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you to all the panelists. Thank you. Thank you. you.
2: Thanks. Thank you.